This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. Here we are again. Here we are again. It's officially fall. It is. It's not feeling like it that much where we are, but it is fall. I like the fact that I mean we had a little bit of a of a of a cooler weather um, break, but it's now back to summer temperatures here in Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah. Though it rained a little bit today, and it's cool, so it 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 feels on the like on the cusp of fall. It's there's not that chill in the air. Gotcha. But it's not hot as balls. Well. It's uh, it's definitely not hot as balls. Not that I would know the temperature of balls, but I'm going to assume that balls can get relatively hot. Relatively speaking. Relatively. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love this time of year. I love that it's cooler in the morning. I love that I have to like make a conscious decision whether it's air conditioning weather or heating weather or neither and, you know, put socks on in the morning and in the evening and use my blanket when I'm watching TV. It's like, I love this. I love the, I love, I actually love the indecisiveness of this time of year because there's not a, like, it's not like you get up and you know, you're going to sweat all day. Right. (laughs) Like like there's a curiosity to it. Right. And so I love that about it. I love that there's like this, Oh, well, I wonder what today will bring. Should I have socks on hand? Should I um, take a jacket with me to my office in the basement? <laughs> yeah, the mystery. Yeah. The, the mystery of fall or this liminal season um, is really nice. I saw on Twitter yesterday that a colleague of mine in in the Toronto area was thinking that her tea – was apple cider and so she was confused why it didn't taste like apple cider and it got me thinking about how much i love apple cider in the fall yeah and the cinnamon yep so i i am not i mean i enjoy 
uh, the like the spices of fall. Yeah, um, I'm not like I'm not one of those people that like longs for pumpkin spice season because pumpkin mm-hmm. spice really isn't a thing. Like, right? Pumpkin doesn't have a spice. It's just like the spices of fall that make this like right. flavorful right thing that we don't normally have throughout the rest of the year. But I went to brunch on Sunday, and I had a dirty autumn chai. Oh. Um, as my instead of mimosas and it was rum and all of the fall spices and chai in this like yummy cold milky alcoholic boozy drink yeah and i was here for it so so it's a cold drink yeah oh what so what's on with it uh, uh, rum and spices and ah. milk and chai and bourbon and I don't remember what else. Because a dirty cha is a cha latte with a shot of espresso. Yeah. Oh, and this actually did have espresso in it too. Yes, but it oh. also had rum and bourbon. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It was nice. lovely. Lovely. So. We're recording this on Tuesday. Yes. And so far, the internet has worked today for us. So far. Um, yesterday was an interesting day for many of us. Yeah. As we watched the largest social media conglomerate in the world come to a screeching halt yeah. and go down before our eyes and really... Um, I think it, I, I mean, look, the memes were, were all over the place. Um, you know, everybody hopped to Twitter to see what was going on. Cause nobody, you know, could get any information or right. know what was going on, but it, it really did, I think, give us all some time to think yeah. about <laughs> who it is we are and what it is we are. And, and it, you know, how we are connected and also how fucking addicted we are to these modes of communication. Yeah. I mean, I had people who, who legitimately were dumbfounded at the number of times that they, uh, without even knowing it, tried to open Instagram on their phone and realized that it was down and that it wasn't going to work and had to remind themselves that, oh, right, it's down. It's not going to work. But there's this, I mean, if you are like, if you are like most of the people who sit at, at, at their computer throughout the day or, or for a portion of time throughout the day, the likelihood is that you have um, Facebook or Instagram as one of your quick links in your browser. Yeah. Yeah. You have that browser window open pretty regularly. Yeah. You get notifications as yeah. to when things are happening. And we had five and a half hours yesterday of absolute silence in the world of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. And it was a little bit glorious. It, it was, it was, I, I was really relieved in the, there, it felt like there was no pressure. Um, it felt like there were no distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also kind of brings us to this conversation that we're going to have today around, you know, what happens when we 
really truly look at the way that we communicate and yeah. what commute what what the extension of that communication is which is community yeah and and the being with one another and the engagement with one another what does it really look like to to do that and and how do outages like yesterday change our thinking around that yeah well i i want to talk about that for sure but I I also want to talk about how we are so dependent on the internet at large. Like it's not just social media. It's it's email, it's web browsing and and the internet can be turned apps. off apps, yeah. And the internet can be turned off by a switch. And so we are we are so dependent on this thing that is so precarious. And so I want to talk about how do we really want to be connected? And I also want to talk about how can we be connected outside of these channels that we have no control over? Right. You know, when we were um, when we were younger, and, and even more so... You mean in the 80s? In yes, the 80s in the 80s, we were, yes. Yeah. In the 70s and the 80s, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and then even more so before we were even um, breathing on this earth. Yeah. The U.S. mail was the, the primary way for individuals to communicate with one another if they didn't have access to a telephone. Right. And so, yes, sure, we can go back even farther in history with telegrams and, um, you know, a, a variety of communication tactics. But for those that are alive and listening to this podcast, regardless of what your age may be, you more or less have existed in a world where the U.S. mail and a wired telephone system within yeah. your home run by a an organization that was um in in for for a long time kind of attached to the federal government yeah was was the means by which you communicated and with the onset of email and the world wide web and our conditioning into being attached to them everything that we know has moved to a space where we rely on some sort of technology to be in touch with the people that we are in community with. Yeah. Now, the exception to that is the person, the people that live in your neighborhood that you might see on a walk, walking yeah. around. Um, but if you want to meet up with those people and plan something, you are going to send them a group text. You are going to send them a group email. You are going to message them on next door. <laughs> like you are going to, you are going to engage with them in a way that prompts a meetup other than the kind of unknown precarity of, Oh, let's just see if we find one another right. on the sidewalk or in the streets or right. walking next door and kind of knocking right. on the door and gathering people. Um, in addition to that, we have businesses that, literally live and die yeah. by the by our internet being up and running right 
um, businesses that only work on delivery services. Yeah. Um, whether they're restaurants or apparel stores or I mean, you name it. Um, businesses that yesterday, many of which lost thousands and thousands of dollars in business yeah. because they physically could not function. Yeah. Um, because they use WhatsApp, which is primarily a communication tool used outside the US, but still affects thousands of people that we both know and love. Right. And, you know, Facebook and Instagram. And there's a, there is a precariousness to it. And yet there is this unsettling, I mean, it feels like we are tethered to something that we both want and want slash need and that we f- actually can never rid ourselves of. Yeah. 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 And, and like, I, you know, I mean, I guess I want to also add in, and I know that this is people's livelihood, but we're so tethered is a good word. Addicted, maybe we're so addicted to consumption and so internet shopping, whatnot. And it's like, I know that we all need clothes and a house and food and people have their businesses online, but like, how do we live life in a way, in a non-addictive way to technology? It, it, it made me want to read 1984 again. Right. You know, it's really, I mean, there's been all kinds of, you know, funny memes and conspiracy theory conversations that have kind of arisen out of the outage yesterday, because as, as many of our listeners may know, and you may not know if this isn't a, something that's of interest to you, but on Sunday, a former Facebook employee armed with thousands of pages of data became a whistleblower in or or revealed herself as the whistleblower who is alerting the public to the way that Facebook does business the way that they are operating in the world as it relates to their desire for engagement and the data that they know they have on Instagram and Facebook regarding depression and suicide on for young for young people. Right. And so if we look just at the data on clicks and interaction on Facebook, you know, one of the things that she disclosed, which isn't surprising I think to any of us, but it's it's weird to kind of actually hear someone affirm it out loud in a public setting. Yeah. Is that Facebook knows that people are more apt to engage with a post if it makes them angry than Uh if it makes them happy. And because of that, they do not limit or police or in any way um, kind of put barriers up against posts that incite anger 
because it is with those posts that most people will engage. And then what that means is once you have engaged with it, Facebook's algorithm automatically puts you into a segment of the community that receives those same kinds right. of anger-inducing posts down the road. Right. So we wonder how our aunts and uncles and, you know, our, our parents and, and the friends of ours that are so conscripted to this, you know, QAnon nonsense and anti-vax nonsense and all of the things that are really oddities to me in the world yeah. Yeah. are, are being kind of led into this, this pen. And, and we now know that Facebook is well aware that that's exactly how it happens because of their algorithm, because of their algorithm. And because they are intentionally not limiting anger producing posts. And so they very astutely, uh, click the switch to turn those posts off prior to the election. Right. But as soon as the election happened, the very next day, they turned that that c- capacity back on. And from the time that Joe Biden was announced the winner of the presidential election until January 6th, when the um, when when the Capitol was under siege, Facebook knew that anger-based posts were going to permeate the algorithm feed of people who were already incited to anger and already susceptible to being um, kind of goaded into this um, personality and and violence cult that, that has developed. And like for fuck's sake, we we actually heard her say that on live television and now we know it to be true. And then the very next day, Facebook goes down. Yeah. Now, I, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe in any of that. But you and I had a conversation before we even knew that Facebook was down yesterday about how just ethically problematic this feels to me on like, how, how, can, how can I continue to use these platforms to promote my business, to engage with people whose voices matter to me and and who like the the who you know relate to my voice right in a in a ethical way that actually doesn't contribute to the harm that these platforms right. already know that that we already know that they're doing yeah um and and that is just one piece of this conversation but it's a really it's become a really big like hairball in my heart and my and my stomach over the last 48 hours. I've yeah. always been challenged by it but uh, ever since ever since I heard the words spoken out loud and affirmed out loud I I just don't know what my role is in um working towards whatever liberation looks like as it relates to how how addicted and tethered we are to these systems. Yeah, I mean, it's I've been asking a lot of questions about um how do we organize outside of social media? And so I re-upped my Mailchimp account, which is why I was texting you earlier about newsletters, uh because we still need a way to talk with people. We still need a way to communicate. And email is a convenient way to do that. Social media, I mean, we crowdsourced a bunch of money for Abra to get her tire fixed after having 
um, a flat and then the lug nut breaking off. And we did a whole mutual aid campaign and a lot of people gave. I, I don't know that people would have given outside of social media. So I do see some benefits uh, sure. uh, to social media, but the benefits aren't outweighing the harm that Facebook and Instagram are doing. I, I, I saw a lot of people saying, I'm leaving Facebook. Once it was back up and running, I saw a lot of people saying, catch me at my website or over on Twitter. But but Twitter doesn't have an ethics <laughs> of engagement. I exactly. mean, I was, I was doxxed on that platform and we experienced a lot of negative traffic on our website. So is there is there a solution in social media land for us to still participate or does there need to be a complete divestment of resources, time and energy? And if so, what do we reinvest in? Yeah, I mean, this this very much feels like the conversations that you and I and our colleagues have around capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it feels impossible to divest completely. Right. And yet there are things that we can ver- that we can intentionally do from a capitalist standpoint to kind of thwart the system and make sure that we are um, not contributing to harm in accelerated ways. Yeah. Whether it is, you know, moving your money from a big bank to a credit union, whether yep. it is, you know, r- forcing yourself to shop local and to, sh- and to keep that dollar circulating in your own community for longer than a day. Right. Um, whether it is, you know, using using shops that participate in fair trade practices. Right. I mean, there are ways in which we can, and the more we do it, And the more others do it and the more we encourage folks to do it, the more we can kind of, you know, give the finger to capitalistic uh, tendencies. And yet it still doesn't feel like enough, but it's what we can do. And and I'm starting to feel like that's got to be our our method with social media as well. Um, I mean, you know, uh, should we as a group – um, and and as an ethic, stop advertising on right. social media. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is it is one thing to participate in the scrolling and the and the consistent kind of brain numbing kind of scroll tactics that come with this with these platforms. But you know, Facebook is making gajillions of dollars every time you see something on Instagram or see something on Facebook that you are interested in and that you right. click through on. Right. Um, you know, can we create an ethic of never, ever clicking through on an ad yeah. on Facebook? And if there's something that we're really interested in, you know, going and Googling that ad right. apart from the click through and finding it through a back channel right. versus finding it through, you know, Instagram or Facebook. Um, can we refuse to participate in the the uh, anger inducing like 
just being like incensed with things. Yeah. Um, and, and, and simply, you know, use these, these platforms for the, for, for goodness. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I know that there are things we can do. The question becomes, can we mobilize and can we organize in a way that encourage us to do that in ways that. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, how do you get the word out? Right. Right. And I mean, do, I think. And how do you, how do you, how do you shift public narrative ar- around this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think that we have to use these platforms for what they've given us. And in some ways that means calling out the platform on the platform. Right. And so I'm not adverse to kind of creating a list of like the top 10 list of things I will now, you know, never be doing on Facebook and Instagram again. Yeah. And, and, and kind of allowing it to be something that could be edited and shared and imagined in spaces other than, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Um, will they catch on eventually? Sure. But if we use the tactics, which many of us are already using by not using keywords, by not using words that become, you know, things that they pick up on yeah. using words like white and black, using words like racism, using words like Antifa um, or fascism. If we, if we find ways to, if we can find ways to thwart those, those metrics, we can also find ways to share content around what we will and what we are and are not willing to, to allow ourselves to be capitulated into. Right. Um, and I think we, I think we beat them at, a, at their own game for as long as we possibly can. Yeah, you know, I remember I was trying to post something about Fred Hampton Jr. and they blocked my post. It and I was like, I'm just talking about a person here, right? But but you aren't. <laughs> but 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 what's interesting is you tried to post something about Fred Hampton Jr. Um, and Facebook knows that I, I would think if I if I feel like I'm understanding kind of the research that's come out. Facebook knows that your post will then incite anger in others about either the encouragement you were trying to drive to Hampton or the, you know, ways in which you were trying to challenge the systems that killed him. Right. Um, It would seem to me that Facebook would want there to be a way in which they could then continue to tap into the people that responded to your post in a way that benefited them. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't get the whole background and the, all the, all the back end, you know, pieces of their research. So uh, who knows? I mean, we have more friends than we can count that have been in and out of Facebook jail yeah. over the last half dozen years. And yeah. I, I just laugh anymore. I'm just like, of course you were in jail. Like, yeah, we've all, we, I mean, it kind of feels like one of those, like you, like you haven't, you haven't arrived unless you've been in Facebook. Right. Jail. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, so I guess, you know, as I think about this and I'm, and I'm, and I'm thinking about, how do we shift narratives? How do we build community? How do we envision the world, the kind of world we want? And it's it's got me thinking about small is all. 
And it's got me thinking, maybe we don't need social media in the ways that we have been told we need it. Maybe what we need are small pods practicing liberation. And can we can we do the work that way versus always trying to do it massive scale? Right. Yeah, I love that thought. I love that. Um, I mean, I am I am a proponent of doing all that you can within the circle that you have. I mean, you know, my my work with neighborhood is is just that. Um, I mean, I really believe that I have the capacity. And, and my neighbors have the capacity to change the lives of everybody that literally lives within a five or six block radius out this window from which I look. If we yeah. all gar- you know gather together and are really intentional about being neighbors with each other, yeah. not people that live in the same area, but neighborly and, yeah. and, and build a community of mutual aid. Um, you know, I think that we will continue because of the nature of innovation and of um, the society that we are a part of, there will, there will be needs to digitize that small is all at, you know, concept in, in ways that we will have to imagine and think through. But you are right in that we, we have to become a group of humans who are willing to truly, truly look out for and protect and be with those who are in this with us, not to just be people who are throwing, you know, truth bombs into the ether and praying that someone's going to pick it up a thousand miles away and run with it. Um, That, that is not going to save us. It may inform us, but it is not going to save us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this has got me thinking about our work on relationships, that if we can do the hard work of building relationships with people and really focus on the healing work of relationship, then that can inform our our praxis. And yet how difficult that is for so many people to understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we had an episode a few months ago on relationships where you and I, you know, were, were very honest about kind of the trajectory our own personal relationship with each other have taken over the course of um, the last few years. And I mean, I recognize that there are way more, there are way more people like me who are not well-versed in relationality and are not well-versed in community and truthfulness in, in the way that, in the way that, that we are modeling. Right. Because of simply because of the way we were brought up as white folks. And, and so I think it's going to take additional effort for us to really model that in ways that, can be harnessed. Yeah. But it's worth it because it yeah. really is all we have. It and it will continue to be all that that will allow us to work through this in the future. Yeah. Um, I I I wish there were a magic pill that we could take to make us more 
um, to make us all give a shit about one another in ways that is more generative. Yeah, you know, when I think about the outage yesterday, and I think about the outcome, the relational outcome of that, instead of getting DMs from people, I was getting emails and text messages from people. And there was a quality and a texture to what I received that felt very different than a comment or a DM. And so I have to ask, is social media ruining our relationships? It's a big question because so many of us, even even those of us in this work who are not driven by ego, really do look at the results of our posts, the ways in which they are engaged, the responses we get, the number of likes we get, the number of hearts we get, the number of people that jump into our DMs to add to or detract from something we said. I mean, there are that instant gratification and that need for engagement that that has addictive qualities to it. Um, what would it look like if we were really able to divest of that feeling, the need for that feeling? Yeah. And, and do, as you have said, you know, engage with email and engage with text in meaningful ways. I mean, yeah. it really does take, I mean, it doesn't take that much longer to craft an email to someone than it does to hop into their DMs and say something. But that extra step of coming out of an app, coming out of a off of a website and into your email server and typing their email address and thinking about the subject matter and, and writing a sentence that creates some kind of contextual you know relationality, yeah. whether it's email or text, that extra step actually, I think, builds on our desire for community Mm. because it it is those extra steps that get us closer to one another. Mm -hmm. And when we are willing to take those extra steps, even if it is simply switching the app in order to communicate further, we we are internally saying to ourselves, my ability and desire to communicate with this person is worth this extra 10 seconds or this extra 30 seconds that it's going to take me to figure this out. It seems so simple and yet it really could make a difference Mm -hmm. in, in how, and quite frankly, who we decide we want to communicate with because how many people didn't communicate with you yesterday, not because they couldn't, but because it, it, you know, even when you were back online and your post had been there for six hours because they had five and a half hours of an outage, they just said to themselves, ah, you know, response isn't worth it at this point. Right. Right. Well, I will tell you that I didn't get hate mail yesterday. Right. <laughs> and I appreciate that. <laughs> it's a good Monday. Yeah, that's one less therapy bill. 
there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, this has got me thinking about, and I know that we're still living in a pandemic and I know that we're not home free yet, but this has got me thinking about, do we know how to gather together? Like on the one hand, how do we organize outside of social media? And then on the other hand, how do we gather together? Now, you know this because we try to do this as often as we can, but I like to gather around a roasted chicken and greens and cornbread. Do we know how to gather together? That, that's the other thing that this is bringing up for me. And if we don't know how to gather, can we begin to practice with one another a kind of gathering well so that we can practice liberation, so that we can practice healing, so that we can practice building, you know, world building? It is hard to ignore another when you are in the same room with them. Right. It is hard to deny the answer to a question or to forcibly exit a conversation if you are within physical proximity to someone else. Right. And it is through that that physical being together that we practice, that we actually I mean, this is this is not something that comes naturally to many of us, right? And we have to practice it. It's 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 the same as it's the same as you know getting better at at working out. It's the same as getting better at a hobby that you're invested in. Yep. It's the same as getting better at writing. Anything that you want to do well, anything that is important to you, anything that is important enough for you to dedicate your time to has to involve some tendencies of practice. Now, you may be naturally good at it, but that doesn't mean that you still don't have to practice at it. Yeah. And the practice of togetherness is as critical as your practice of anything else that you are doing. And that practice isn't, it, it can't be passive. Mm. So many of you may go to church or may go to your community center or may go to your coffee shop on a weekly basis and, you know, grab your cup of coffee or sit in your pew and allow what is happening around you to happen without engaging in it or with it. Right. There's a passive nature to your, to your, to what you're doing in that space. Togetherness does not allow that passivity. Togetherness asks you to engage, not just to go through the motions, but to actually shake the hand or hug or acknowledge the person that is close to you, to, um, you know, um, pick up and, and wash off the pacifier of the baby who dropped it at the table next to you because the mother is overwhelmed with mm-hmm. God knows what, or the right. father is overwhelmed. To be in conversation with those who are houseless on the street and not just allow your, um, th- your mind to say, oh, like they're not a part of the community that I've chosen to engage with and therefore I am able to kind of be passive in my, 
in my togetherness with them. Yeah. It requires us to practice it. And we can't do that unless we are in proximity to one another. Mm. Now, can we can we achieve aspects of it via FaceTime and Zoom and um, you know, digital capacities? Yes, we can. And and we have found that we have to. We have found that there there are ways in which we have to be able to imagine and and practice the kind of togetherness that you and I are talking about in creative ways sometimes. Yeah. Because things like the pandemic have made it so we don't have an option. But I think what if I if I understand what you're saying, you know, your your need for community and and whatever it is that you are imagining in your head as the kind of thing that will bring you and your neighbors and those you love liberation has to be engaged with in some way that practices togetherness. And if that is coming around, if that is like Robin and I and coming around a table, you know, with a roasted chicken and greens and cornbread and don't forget the bourbon, yep. um, you know, then then that's one way it looks. But it's it, it's going to look different for you. But what is it? What does it look like? And how can you find ways for togetherness in creative ways that allow you to practice that kind of vulnerability and that kind of communication and that kind of engagement where your hearts are drawing energy from one another and your bodies are drawing energy from one another and your brains are drawing energy from one another yeah. and you are actually engaging in this act. Yeah. That's radical. Yeah. That yeah, that's I mean, the that's the kind of radical stuff that actually will change the world. And shame on us for forgetting for so long that it is as simple as that. Well, I I you know, I feel curious about you know, so many of us talk about we want change. We want to change because the last 4 years have been harm producing for many people. So we want change. But then our options for change is a choice between two different evils. Some will say, no, Joe Biden is a change. Other people will say there's no difference. There's just not a scandal every day. So I want to ask, how do we imagine change when the options that we're given is not, I mean, it's relative. Like, are we really able to imagine the kind of change that we need? And if so, why aren't we doing that work? And I'm talking about, I'm talking about the liminal spaces I'm talking about the mystical experiences. I'm talking about the the effervescence of life. Why don't we chase after that instead of relying on what's handed to us? Can we really imagine the kind of change we want and need in a world 
that really doesn't give us any options for change. I mean, where my heart initially goes to that curiosity is in reminding myself that no one is going to save me. Yeah. Um, And my own desire to be engaged and curious about our political system is as much a problem as my lack of desire to be engaged in the liminal. Yeah. And what I mean when I say that is, you know, I, I am, I rely on the media and the news to deliver to me a a section of knowledge that is supposed to encourage me into change and, and, and in some ways anger and incite me into marching and protesting and, you know, changing what I'm doing, you know, changing who I'm buying from and, and, and all of those things. And yet in zero ways will any of the content that comes out of that media voice box save me. Right. Um, What would it look like if I were to, you know, fully divest of media and news and my desire to know what's going on and my desire for someone else to tell me what I should be outraged about Mm. and invest in, um, you know, getting to know the neighbors that moved in next door. Yeah. Or reconnecting, reconnecting with my partner in a way that is different than the normal day to day. Right. Um, determining what, I mean, I know I say this a lot, not people probably think I sound like a broken record, but you know, the, the, the politics that are going to save you are the politics that are right outside your door. Mm. And so what does, what does shifting my vision from the national rhetoric to my district and my neighborhood rhetoric around political change look like yeah. in my context? And does that produce the kind of, you know, the, the kind of spark that actually will allow me to see change happening before my eyes because my dirty hands actually worked to fucking make that happen. Right. Um, I mean, those are curiosities I have around, you know, your question. I, I don't know if those are, I don't know if the, if those things will get us there or not. Well, I, I, I mean, I will say that 20 years ago, I stopped voting on a federal level. I voted in presidential elections, but I didn't vote for anything else. And I would only vote in local elections because I thought where I could manifest the greatest change is by getting involved locally. And so I did that. And I was living in Chicago, which is a very complicated political sphere to begin with. Um, But I think when we invest locally, we can realize the change. It's way more immediate. Yeah. I, I mean, it, 
even if you even if your locale only changes its mayor every four or six years, I mean, your city council is meeting once a month and right. or your board of supervisors or whom your school board, they are meeting regularly. And that I mean, they are making real time changes right. that that you are going to experience in the streets of your city almost within weeks of the time that that vote is taken. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's, I mean, that's an easy example for me. Um, that it doesn't get us to kind of back to this, this understanding of kind of community and, and togetherness that we speak of, but it definitely is something that would get me out of this mindset of, how, you know, how do I, how do I eat an elephant Mm. why do I give a shit about eating an elephant? Why don't I care about actually eating something that that's local here? Like, I mean, that's a bad example, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, why, like, why am I, why am I so concerned? Look, I am radically, radically scared shitless about the fact that we will likely lose Roe v. Wade by the end of this calendar year. And yet there is zero I can do about it. Yes, I can protest. I can make signs. I can go to every women's march I want. I can call my, you know, POS senators. I can call my representatives. I can write letters. I can do absolutely everything. And yet the Supreme Court is not going to change its mind based on a single thing I do. Right. But that doesn't mean that I should, it doesn't mean I shouldn't do it, but it also doesn't mean that I shouldn't also focus on, you know, we just had people here in Chattanooga. We just hired a Planned Parenthood representative here in Chattanooga for the first time in history. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to work with that person to create an underground railroad of sorts for right. women in this in this literal community who are who are going to be without abortion access come yeah. January first and. Yeah. And, and what does it look like for me to get my hands dirty in that way? Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of tactics I think that make a big a bigger difference in the lives of us from a togetherness standpoint than any bitching I'm going to do about Roe v. Wade. And yes, yeah. I'm going to bitch about it, but I, I mean, I, I I hear you, and and also I want to say I think that that investing locally in local politics is a way to reimagine togetherness. Like it just doesn't happen at the dinner table. I'm, I'm thinking of a couple initiatives here in Nashville that emerged like the community oversight board. Yeah. It emerged yeah. because, because of local organizing, because of relationships, because of people getting out and knocking door to door. And, and a lot of those people have become lifelong friends as a result. And so I I think that there are some imaginative ways to practice togetherness outside of sharing a meal together. Like we can do some local organizing, but we're, we're going to have to, I mean, I've said this for years, the left and those who are left of the left are not organized. Right. Um, Never have been. Never have been. The, the there's too much infighting. There, we we can't agree on any kind of coalitional politics, um, and, and yet the right continues to out organize us. And so, we've got to find a way to practice relationships to organize. Otherwise, we're going to continue to be up against 
um, a well thought out organized plan that will just continue to replicate harm. Right. And, and, and these are not solutions that we come by easily. And I, I, yeah, thank you for, for, you know, kind of drawing that line, you know, connecting those dots between um, our dinner table togetherness and the togetherness that we can see within, within neighborhood. You're absolutely right. Um, we we have to figure it out. We have to we have to both think about what has happened to us in the last twenty four hours as it relates to social media, um, and get more creative on what our tactics are right. and what our organizing plans are for our work. If for some reason these systems go down long term, um, or enough people say screw it and jump off and decide that they are no willing, no longer willing to, to right. be a part of the machine right. that is Mark Zuckerberg's brain. Right. And, um, and all of that takes work. And I think that I, I've loved this episode because it's allowed us to do some imagining and some dreaming, yep. um, but to also kind of lay out some, some real concerns around yeah. both our media platforms and the, the, challenges that we all have yeah. around being together and, and figuring out how to do this work yeah. so that liberation really is the outcome, not just yeah. the dream. Yeah. So it's good stuff. Well, friends, please don't forget to follow us. Don't forget to engage with us. Um, I'd love to hear what your ideas are on generating community and generating togetherness apart from your social media channels feel free to tweet at us at Activist Theology or jump into those DMs that we so gladly didn't have to look at yesterday. Um, also, do follow us at atporch.com. Um, we have built, I mean, it's, it's funny to say it, we have built a digital community um, at atporch.com that we are trying to curate in ways that that do thwart the systems of Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram that really are generative and, and that build conversation and that it ask hard questions and that ask us to be together in a space with others that are like us. So we encourage you to join. Um, it is free to join and we'd love to have you there. Just go to atporch.com and you can sign up. Um, we will. Do you want to tell the good people what we're doing next weekend? Ah, uh, yes. Next weekend, we are going to be in McAllen, Texas. Um, we are going to be joining um, the folks with um, Vote Common Good and a couple of other organizations who are currently doing a We the People bike ride across the entire border of um Mexico and the United States. They started in California and they are making their way and, and are already in Texas. And Dr. Robin and I will be joining them in McAllen next weekend for their work there. We'll be doing work both in Texas and across the border in Mexico. And we'll be recording a live version yes. of our podcast there yes. from McAllen, which yes. is very exciting. Yes. So we like in-person events. We sure do. So you all make sure you follow us on Twitter um, individually and as activist theology. Um, I am unholy heretic and Robin is I Robin and make sure that you follow us so that we can, um, 
show you all the goodness that we're experiencing in real time while we're in McAllen. Um, there's a lot of work to do, friends. There's a lot of possibility as well. And so as we continue to get our hands dirty in the work, and as you continue to be on this journey with us, um, we remind you that we really are in this together, whether we want to be individualistic about it or not. Um, if we don't do this together, um, we will perish and mm. we are all we have. Yeah. Now's our time. Thanks, Dr. Robin. Till next week. Let's get free. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no. You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.